Mark chapter 4, or sorry, chapter 7, verse 14 through 23 is our text this morning. So let me read it to you. Jesus, the context here is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the disciples about the origin of evil, of moral evil. It says in verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Jesus speaking, Hear all of you and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot really defile their soul? That's the context here. Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and then is expelled literally to the latrine outside, then he de- thus he declared all foods clean, verse 20. And then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. It's not what goes into him, actually what comes out of him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, and what we're going to talk about today, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. I want to start, because we've been talking about sin for the last four, five weeks now, I don't want to um, get to where that's pretty much all that we do and talk about is sin, 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 sin. You're like, oh, it's that church that talks about sin all the time. Actually, the reason why we've stopped and talked about sin is we really want you to see how great Jesus is, how wonderful he is. We've been looking at the life of Jesus in the book of Mark since we started in January. And we've been saying all these wonderful and awesome things about Jesus, and you can't really understand what Christ has done in his ministry and the work on the cross until you understand how depraved we are, how utterly selfish and inward bent we are. That's only when we know, really, how truly great of a Savior Jesus is. And last week, we ended by sharing a quote by John Owen, who wrote Amazing Grace. And I want to start with this quote because I want you to realize the context of what we're sharing, of what I'm teaching this morning. John Owen said he was a slave trader, remember? And he got saved. And at the end of his life, he said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. See, if you think you're a sinner this much, then Christ is only a savior that much. But if you realize that I am exceedingly more sinful than I can ever imagine, then Christ is more exceedingly a redeemer than you can ever imagine. Christ is our Redeemer. And I know that I just did the gospel at the very beginning, but I really want you to get this. So this is the context of what we're talking about. Because as we talk about secret sin, we're talking about secret sin now, the sin that we all hide in our heart, the sin that really no one really knows about. As we talk about secret sin, I want you to realize that Christ is a wonderful and public Savior. So, we've been looking at Jesus' explanation on the origin of moral sin and moral evil. And we've been breaking down verses 21 through 22, that list that Jesus gives of all these sins, these various sins and vices. And it started broad, we kind of started pretty broad talking about striking sin three weeks ago, the obvious moral sins that you come to expect from the Bible, like theft, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and even last week we said that if you took a poll of all the religions, they pretty much all command the same thing, that we live rightly and justly, but no one has the power to do that. And so 
That's why we, we talked about those sins and how Christ is our Savior and our striking, broad, in-your-face sins. Then last week, we went a little deeper and talked about subtle sin, the more culturally acceptable sins. And I used this example last week that, like if I was coveting your jacket, I probably wouldn't covet your jacket today because it's hot, but let's say I'm, I'm coveting your sandals or whatever. And I walked up like, oh my gosh, I'm totally coveting your sandals. And you would take that as a compliment. You would say, thank you. Um, I bought them on sale or something like that. And it's so, coveting is so culturally acceptable that we take it as a compliment. And Christ lists coveting in these lists of vices, of sins. And we also said the sins of like white lies and deceit and slander and envy. Well, today, we'll, look a little, we'll get a little bit more surgical as we look at secret sin. And the last two sins that Jesus names here are pride and foolishness. And so I want to look at those. Look at those two sins. And the way I want to look at these sins is this, three, three ways. The hardness of sin, or sorry, the hiddenness of sin. Now, I understand hiddenness is not a word, but you kind of have this liberty as a preacher to make up words. So I'm using my liberty. The hiddenness of sin, pride. The hideousness of sin, foolishness. And the cure for sin, the cross. So let's look at the hiddenness of sin first. So when we started the book of Mark uh, a while back, and as we've been going along in the book of Mark, we said that Mark is giving to us and showing us, all of us, the real Jesus, who Christ really is. In the very beginning of this gospel, Jesus is introduced to us as being both the Messiah, the anointed Savior of the world, and the Son of God. And then Mark traces the life and the ministry of Jesus, and we've said and we've been saying that it's been characterized by the inbreaking kingdom of God. Now, if you, if you don't know what that concept means, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that teaching on the inbreaking kingdom of God. It kind of sets the pace for the whole book of Mark. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God. It's God come to earth, breaking into human time and space. And we said that when Jesus does this, he challenges every other claim to power over humanity. He challenges every other claim to power, everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from God's created order. Jesus breaks in and he brings freedom. Because in Mark's narrative, demons dominate people and illnesses make people less than whole and nature threatens to destroy and humans oppress other humans and then Jesus comes in and he begins to undo all of that. And this is what the inbreaking kingdom of God is and what it does. And in chapter 7 in Mark's gospel, this question comes up. Okay, so where does all this evil and brokenness come from then? If everything is broken and unraveled and Jesus is putting it back together again, where does evil come from? All that Jesus is bringing and undoing and putting things right, where does all that evil come from? What is the source of this unraveling? And how is unraveling of how God created the world. Why is it that we have a broken relationship with God and consequently we live these broken lives? Where does all this come from? Why do we have broken religion and broken churches? Why do we have broken relationships with others? Why do we have broken sexual identities, broken fetishes, broken desires and wants? Where does all of that come from? And the religious leaders at the time had their own answer. They said, well, it's a product of our environment. It's all out there. All the evil is out there because my family was really broken and messed up. Therefore, I'm really broken and messed up. 
because I live in a busy, broken city, I begin to reflect that. So the goal then to the religious leaders becomes something like Lady Macbeth tried to do over and over again in vain. The goal becomes to wash your own hands, to keep yourself clean like Lady Macbeth did, trying to wash the blood spot from her hand. If you guys remember that, we shared this several weeks ago. Out, damn spot, out, I say, as she walked around in her sleep. And then to take that smell of blood from her hands, but she realizes and she confesses in the play, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Why? Because the spot was on her, was not on her hand, the spot was on her soul. The dark, damned spot was way deeper than she ever thought. And this is the deception of religion and religious activity. You see, religion, and what I mean by religion, I mean like I obey and do everything I'm supposed to do, therefore I'm accepted by God. Religion carries, it with, carries with it this idea that I can clean myself. It carries with this idea that I can make myself clean. I can do all things myself. This is exactly what the Pharisees were proclaiming. And you can clean your own life up. You can fix yourself. You can clean yourself. You can keep your life so together that God wants you. He wants to accept you. All I have to do is go to church and live in community and live by the golden rule and tithe and brush my teeth before I go to bed and I'm good. It's all good if I just do all those things. And then Jesus steps in in chapter 7 and he comes along and he messes up their whole paradigm. He wrecks their whole paradigm. And I hope this has been wrecking our paradigm. If we think that sin is this and the environment is this and we're totally destroyed because the problem isn't out there, it's not in the things that you even do. That what Jesus is saying in this text is the problem lives in all of us. The problem is our hearts are evil. That's what Jesus is saying. The problem is your heart is evil. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil. Evil starts in here. And that problem starts in here and it begins to work its way out. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if you remember that story. Now, before I ever read that story... I remember watching an old Disney cartoon, and it was kind of the same theme. And so whenever I think of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I think of this old goofy cartoon. It was made in the 1950s. Now, I didn't grow up in the 1950s, but I remember watching, when all my friends were watching Saved by the Bell, I was watching vintage Disney cartoons. <laughs> and I remember watching this one cartoon I actually found it on YouTube this week. It's called Goofy Motor Mania. If you ever, you have to look this up. It's the awesomest cartoon, if you like cartoons. It was about, it started out, this is the case of Mr. Walker. He's a decent gentleman. It shows Goofy walking outside. Decent gentleman, typical average man. He's a good citizen. He's a kindly fellow. He wouldn't harm a fly or step on an ant. He's honest and courteous. But Mr. Walker owned an automobile, it says. And once behind the wheel of this automobile, a phenomenon takes place. Mr. Walker is changed with an overwhelming sense of power. His whole personality changes, and abruptly, he becomes an uncontrollable monster, and it says, Mr. Walker becomes Mr. Wheeler, demon driver. And it shows him changing, and he's like, turns into this wolf, and he's all dark and demonic, and he just pulls out, and he starts going like crazy. And I remember watching that as a kid going, I'm never gonna drive. I'll turn into a demon. And then I, I married someone just like this. My wife is the sweetest, most awesome woman in the world, but she gets behind the wheel of her little Honda Fit and she turns into Mrs. Wheeler, demon driver. 
And I'm with her, and I'm like, Ash, oh my gosh, uh, slow down. She goes, I have this. I know what I'm doing. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> We've had many discussions. I'm like, listen, before God and all living things, please don't drive anymore. <laughs> She's like, I have to drive. I'm like, no, like, I'll take you. I'll be your chauffeur. That'll be my, my, my job for the rest of my life. I'll drive you everywhere. Now, in, in, the, in the story of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Henry Jekyll realizes that he's a, this twisted compound of good and evil. He comes to realize in the book, I'm this, I'm this mixture of good and evil. And then seeking to separate his good side from his darker impulses, he like discovers this potion. And when he drinks this potion, he can transform himself periodically when he wants to into this creature free of conscience. He could do whatever he wants to do and he's free of this nagging conscience. He could do all the evil he wants to do and be free from the fact that he is Dr. Jekyll. He could become Mr. Hyde. Now today we call this potion Las Vegas. <laughs> where what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Now this is what he discovered, this, this potion that he could take, that he could do whatever he wants to do and then live without the guilt of it. And this creature that was created was Mr. Edward Hyde. Now it was, he was named Mr. Hyde because the evil within him was both hidden and hideous. But Dr. Jekyll finds that when he takes the potion and he turns into this monster, he's far more evil than he ever expected. He's way more evil than he thought. The evil within him was far worse than he ever imagined. And when Dr. Jekyll turns into Mr. Hyde, he thinks only of himself, his own desires. He doesn't care who he hurts or who he kills in order to gratify himself. He's completely bent inward to do whatever he pleases. And not only did Dr. Jekyll realize that he was far more evil than he ever thought, he also realized that it did not make his first identity purely good. Dr. Jekyll was still messed up. And eventually, Dr. Jekyll found that he was turning into Hyde involuntarily in his sleep without taking the potion at all. So he stops. He's like, I'm not going to take the potion anymore. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm going to get right. So he starts to devote his life to philanthropy. He gives his life to good deeds. He gives himself over to doing good works. He stops taking it altogether. He gives his money to charity and all, sort, all this to sort out like to atone for his, the, the sins of Edward Hyde and all the evil that Edward Hyde had done and trying to smother his selfish nature with these acts of unselfishness. And after doing this, after giving all his money away and doing all these wonderful and great deeds, he's sitting in a park one day as Dr. Jekyll. And he considers how much of a good person he's been and how much money he's given away and how many people he's helped. And as a result of all these good deeds, he starts to compare himself to other people. And he starts to think that he's way better than other people, that he's redeemed himself from his ugly past. However, before he completes this whole line of thought, he looks down at his hands and he realizes that suddenly he's Mr. Hyde again. And it says this in the book, I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. At the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down and I was once more Edward Hyde. See, this is the first time that an involuntary metamorphosis had happened during the day when he wasn't asleep without the potion. 
and he killed himself after this because it was so horrid. Now, this is actually pretty profound on the author's part and what he's saying. Because what the author is saying is, yes, it's evil to be self-centered. It's evil to murder and to let yourself go in unashamed, unbridled lust. That's evil. That's Mr. Hyde the hideous. But what the author is saying is there's even a greater evil out there. And that evil is pride and self-righteousness. Trying to cover up and atone for your own sins by your good works, and that's evil as well. That's Mr. Hyde, the hidden. See, when I stand here every single week and try my best to represent to you Jesus as Savior and Lord, please don't read into that that I'm calling you to be good or to be moral or to be religious or to clean up your life. First of all, you can't do that. Second of all, that's not really what God requires of you. See, the point of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in that story and what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 7 to the Pharisees and to the disciples is that the sin of pride lies so hidden in your heart that it destroys even your greatest efforts of goodness and godliness. Even your greatest efforts, like, I'm going to be so good, I'm going to do good things. When you do good things, pride's right there. Let me give you an example. You go out to buy a car. Well, I don't know if you have a car, but let's say you did. You went out to buy a car, and when you go out to buy a car, you want something economical, you want something good on gas, you want something good for the environment, and something that you can park anywhere in the city. And so you buy yourself maybe a little hybrid or something. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm so, I'm so conscious of the environment. And I drive like this small compact car in this big old city, I'm, I'm so good. Okay, so good job, that's awesome, that's great. But then you see that giant lifted truck with dual tires on the back, mud flaps, that giant decal, wasting gas, and what do you think? You think to yourself, oh my gosh. Look at that gas-guzzling, smog-producing, road-hogging, insert derogatory name here. <laughs> I've seen it happen a lot to people that buy, like, economical, nice, small, compact, gas-efficient cars. They're driving their little cars around. Oh, look at me. I'm so good. I'm, I'm helping the environment out. And they see those big trucks. like, oh, look at those people. Where do they live? Where do you park that thing? Let me gas it waste. There's just so... It, that's what happens. There's that pride. Or if you just ride a bike everywhere and you don't even have a car. You look at cars like monsters, all of them. You own a car? Oh my gosh. I don't believe you own a car. Whenever I ride my bike to work, I think I own the road because I'm on a bike and I'm better. I had this San Francisco pride going, I own the road here. You guys are all just on your big old Bluetooth things, talking on your phone, in your car, wasting space and, and clogging up the streets. I'm on my bike. Make room for me. See, we do good things, but then there's pride right there. Right there, and it's so sneaky. It's there, and you're like, I'm doing good things, though. Yeah, but there's pride there. There's pride in even when you volunteer and you help. I'm so, I volunteer. I'm way better than people that don't volunteer. I give. I'm way better than people that don't give. I serve. I care. I'm open-minded. I'm open-minded to everybody except for closed-minded people. See how pride gets in there? Pride is so tricky and so hidden. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. He says this, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else. He says actually that the gauge of how to know how prideful you are is how much you recognize pride in other people and how much you hate it. If you really hate pride in other people, it's because you're really prideful. If you're not prideful and you see pride, you're like, 
whatever. But when you're really prideful, and this is so applicable, this could be like a marriage conference, actually, this one. When, you're, when you like recognize pride in your spouse, and I know some of you guys aren't married, but take note, you probably will be one day. You're married, and you're like, you see pride in your spouse, and you hate it. Why? Because you're prideful. That's why. Or you see pride in your roommate. You're so prideful, says the unprideful, loving person. No, that's not how it goes. Says the more prideful person that wants to win the argument. Why don't you see my point? See how tricky pride is? There's one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. The vice I'm talking about is pride. See, it was through pride that the devil became the devil, according to Isaiah 14. Pride is such a secret sin, it's even secret to you. My pride hides from me, and your pride hides from you. See, you know when you're committing sexual immorality. You know it. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm sexually sinning right now. You know when you're killing someone. Oh my gosh, I'm killing someone right now. You know when you're stealing. I'm putting this in my pocket. I'm stealing it. Like, you know when you're stealing it. You know these things, but you hardly ever see it when you're being proud and self-centered. That's how tricky and secret pride is. Therefore, pride can grow in the heart of even a moral person. Pride can grow in the heart of the, the most moral person in San Francisco. You can actually become more prideful as you become more self-controlled, more honest, more courageous, and more disciplined. You can grow in pride as you grow in discipline. You can grow in pride as you grow in self-control. You can grow in pride as you grow in honesty. You know why? Because in your pride, you have no patience for those who lack self-control. Like you could just like, I need to get, I need to get in shape, and I need to start eating right and doing all this stuff, and then you do it, and it's really good, but then you have no patience for people that have no self-control. You're like, why don't you have, just do it, man. Just have self-control. Or you're like, okay, I'm doing this, I'm being way more honest. You have no patience for liars. You can actually be growing in these great areas, but then pride growing deeper and deeper. You have no patience for people who are dishonest or cowards or the undisciplined. This means you can even obey God's law out of spiritual pride. You can obey God's law. You can be really good here because you're trying to save yourself, because you're trying to get God to do what you want him to do, because you, f- you want to feel superior over others. See, I-, I want you to know here at this church, we don't just say s- sinners that sin outwardly are sinners, but sinners that try to do all the right things for the wrong re- reasons are sinners as well. When you start doing this, you realize how wide sin is, how big sin is. It's not just like, oh my gosh, they just talk about all these things that you can't do at that church. No, we don't. We say even the good things we do are ruined by our own hearts sometimes. And then we see Jesus as a great and awesome Savior who can actually change our hearts. Well, how do you know if this is you? How do you know if this is, this is you? You're this prideful. You're like, if sin hides, how do I know? Here's a couple ways. You're always comparing yourself to other people. Even in spiritual things. They're worshiping bigger than me. They have a bigger Bible than I do. They read way more. They, 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 they like quote scripture more. Like, why... I'm gonna, I'm, I can do it more. I could, do, I, I, I could worship better than they can. You start comparing yourself, even in good things. You want, you're never sure if you're being good enough. Like, am I, is this pleasing? Am I pleasing enough? 
or probably the, 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 the telltale sign, when something goes wrong in your life, you actually have a crisis of faith. Because you're not sure if you can believe in a God who, when you follow him, doesn't make life go the way you want it to go. Like, I can't, how can I serve a God who, whenever I choose to follow him and I sacrifice for him, he gives me nothing in return? That's one way you know that, that pride has creep, crept in. And you're actually doing things to get. If you don't realize the sin of pride and how it's been an offense to God, you can't, you can actually start to feel pretty good about yourself and start to push Jesus and the way, his way of miraculous, free grace salvation to the side. If you don't realize how vile you are, then you start to look at the cross like, yeah, it's just another event, no big deal. But you realize, oh my gosh, I'm really, really prideful and sinful. Even when I do good, you realize the cross is so beautiful. Okay, that's the hiddenness of sin. Now, the hideousness of sin, okay? Now, I think the hideousness of sin can be found in the last vice that Jesus mentions, and this will actually close our time in this sin passage, but it's foolishness. Now, I, it's kind of an unexpected sin. You're like, sexual immorality, blah, 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 foolishness. You're like, wait, if you're ditzy or not street smart, why, why are you blamed for that? I don't understand. Okay, this is, this is not, it seems kind of harsh. This is not talking about intellectual ability. It means something different. It means this. Foolishness is a wrong attitude toward God, which prevents the person from knowing how to behave properly. It's just wrong attitude toward God. This is why, this is really hideous sin. When you look at God in a way that he's never revealed himself. Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now notice again, all these deeds start in the heart. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Now this is not ammo for atheists. This is not ammo for people who don't go to church saying, okay, all atheists are fools and we have it right and you have it wrong. That's not what it's saying at all. It's not speaking of philosophical atheism. It's speaking of functional atheism. What I mean by that is this. It's not talking about people that don't philosophically believe that God exists and are ignorant in some way. This is talking about those who, of us who functionally live and make decisions as though God doesn't ex exist. That we live and we make decisions as though God doesn't exist. Like God doesn't take an interest in my human affairs and will not call me on account of my deeds. It's like, I'll do this with my relationships. I'll do this with my money. I'll do this with my job. And I don't take into account that there's a living God that I will stand before. This is functional atheism. The fool says in his heart, there is no God over my money. I can, it's my money and I can use it however I want to use it. That's functional atheism. They're like, oh, there's a God on Sunday when we're singing second set and communion and carpets and all this other stuff. There's a God then. But when I get paid, God, what? I'm a functional atheist. I don't believe in God when I get paid. That's functional atheism. Functional atheism is the fool says in her heart, there is no God over my time and career. I can work as much as I want and I can do whatever I want with my time. It's my time. Functional atheism. The fool says in his heart, there is no God over my rela romantic relationships. God, just leave the relationship thing to me. I have it figured out. I know what I'm doing. 
I don't really want to believe in you when it comes to my relationships. The fool says in her heart, there is no God over my art and creativity. It's like, hey, when I do art, when I'm being creative, I mean, I don't, I don't want to bring God into it. I don't want to be the cheesy guy that, that paints crosses everywhere. But you don't bring God into your creativity. You don't ask God, God, make me creative. You're the most creative being in the world. I want to bring you into my art and into my creativity. I mean, do you see the reason why Jesus made this, foolishness made Jesus' short list? The sin of functional atheism is a form of pride. And it's so rooted in the core of who we are. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew that any sin becomes an, before it becomes an outward expression, first starts as a secret sin in your heart. Before having sex with someone you're not married to, there's a secret sin of lust in your heart. Before you would ever murder someone and take their life, there is a secret sin of hatred in your heart. Before you ever wanted to steal money or to steal someone's possession, there is a secret sin of coveting in your heart. What is sin's essence? J.I. Packer says, sin's essence is playing God. Acting as if you and your pleasure were the end to which all things, God included, must be made to function as a means. See, sometimes you believe in God if it helps you get your goal of pleasure. Okay, I'll believe in God then because he makes me feel good at this moment. Or sometimes you don't. Like, I don't want to believe in God right now because I want to go after my pleasure. Everything, God included, function as a means to get to the end goal, your pleasure. That's sin. That's foolishness. We started this series by saying that over, I think it was eight times the word anthropos is used in this section. That we're focused on self and we're anthropocentric. We're centered around ourselves. So what's the cure of sin? What's sin's cure? So let's close with this. Sin's cure. I'm guilty of every single thing that I'm saying today. Everything I'm talking about, I am guilty of myself. I am guilty of this, and I think every single one of us is guilty of this. The Paul the Apostle, he quotes Psalm 14. The fool says in the heart, there is no God. He quotes the rest of the passage when he writes to the church in Rome, and it says in Romans 3, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we, we have already charged that both the Jews and Greeks, or you can read in here, conservative and liberal, everyone is under sin. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God, they have all turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their path are, paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God in their eyes. And then the greatest two words, I think, in the book of Romans is next, but now. That's who we are, all of us, we're all guilty. Paul says that, that, that everyone's guilty, the, the, the conservative and the liberal, everyone's guilty, the, the righteous and the immoral, Everyone is guilty. But now the true righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
And this is the righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be, to be received by faith. This was to, to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You have to understand the historical and the revelatory weight of this passage. Bear with me really fast. In the Old Testament, the people of God knew that God deeply hated sin. Not only did God hate sin, but sin made God angry. God had a holy, righteous anger because of sin. Now, this might scare you. This sentence, you're like, whoa, Dave. I mean, you're starting to sound like those churches that hold the signs, that picket that God hates everything and everyone and everyone's going to hell. You're starting to freak me out here. There's even a name for these type of churches and these type of preachers. It's called hellfire and brimstone, Right? And basic message is this, God is angry, God hates sin, God hates the sinner, God will judge the sinner, and the sinner is storing up for himself and herself the wrath of God against them, and God will pour out his wrath upon them, and if they don't repent, in hell. So that's their message. But you also hear this, that God is love, that God is kind, that he is patient, and long-suffering with you. He loves you. The God of the universe loves you personally and individually. Now, how can they both be true? God is angry, then he loves me? I mean, it's like, he, he beats me and says, I love you, I love you, I'm doing this because I love you, and he, like, just, that's weird. How is this, how is this true? And I would tell you, if you believe me or not, that they are both true. And this is the tension throughout the whole Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, what happens is God is holy, righteous, sovereign, powerful. He hates sin, and his wrath is poured out against the sinner. But God is a lover. He's merciful toward people. He's compassionate and deeply concerned. When people turn away from God, he's angry, he disciplines, but yet he forgives, he shows wrath, but yet he shows mercy. And there's this strange tension that goes throughout the whole New Old Testament over and over again. And the tension remains until the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus' death on the cross shows God's deep hatred of sin and his wrath that comes against the sinner, but his deep mercy and love for humanity. At the cross, you see both the angry God who hates sin and the loving God who is in crazy love with us that would do anything to redeem us. The bloody, brutal cross shows God's anger and hatred towards our striking, subtle, and even secret sins, that justice must be met for our sins, his righteous wrath must be dealt out, but he gave us his son to die for us on that cross, in our place, our punishment, our payment. He has shown us his deep love for us. So we've been talking about sin. And God does come against sin. But then again, I don't want you to miss this. At the cross, 
God's hatred towards sin and his radical love for humanity is met at the cross. The cross becomes a beautiful, wonderful thing. The holiness of God and the kindness of God meet at the cross. The holiness of God and the kindness of God meet at the cross. And so as we worship, this is how we worship. God is kind, and he can give us a new heart. He radically hates, and you probably, after, after this series, like, man, I'm way more vile than I ever thought. He is a greater savior than you ever thought as well. If you're that vile and that sinful, he's that much greater of a savior. And when we realize our sin, we realize what he did to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He took our place because he loves us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted and glorified. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have paid our penalty for sin. And Jesus, I, I, I just pray that this church, Lord, us as a community would get this radical sense of your nearness and your presence. And we would be so humbled that you would love us. But then again, we'd be so em, just emboldened, Lord, because you've paid the price to set us free. Pray for people here that sin runs way deeper than they think in their friendships and their marriages and maybe pride or even foolishness in their own heart. I pray that we would all find repentance and forgiveness at the table of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.